Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. The war in Ukraine rages on. It's hard to know exactly how many people have been killed since Russia invaded at the end of February. But the UN has documented more than 3,000 civilian deaths. But that's not including those who have died as a result of the living conditions and lack of access to medical care. Ukrainian officials estimate some 20,000 people have died in the southern city of Mariupol alone. That just last night, a barrage of Russian missiles struck the southern Ukrainian city of Odessa. So how many... How is that hitting home for our Ukrainian communities here in Tennessee? We'll find out what some local folks are doing to help. But first, a joint investigation into the Rutherford County juvenile justice system by WPLN News and ProPublica was named a Pulitzer Prize finalist yesterday. The investigation exposed a lack of accountability in a system that illegally arrested and jailed at an alarming rate. The statewide average for how often children were locked up, 5%. In Rutherford County, it was 10 times as high. Under the watch of Judge Donna Scott Davenport, more than 1,000 children were illegally arrested and jailed over the course of decades. Our very own Mariba Knight broke this story, and she joins us now. Mariba, welcome to the show, and major congratulations to you. Thank you so much for having me, Khalil. So I'd love to start off with how this all came about. What first made you look into this story? Yeah, it was kind of a long winding road, but I moved to Nashville in March of 2016 and a little more than a month after I arrived, there are these mass arrests in Rutherford County. Close to a dozen elementary school kids are picked up, some at school, one while on the bus waiting to go home, all of them black. Uh, They'd been accused of watching some boys scuffle and not stepping in to stop it. The incident blew up on local news, national news, even international news. And it always stuck with me. I was just so curious and so shocked and thought, you know, there's certainly something more here. This doesn't just happen. You know, something Mm -hmm. led to this moment, though I I really had no idea just how much more there was there. But I began following a handful of lawsuits that were winding their way through the federal courts, all related to these arrests in one way or another. And the filings were just so interesting. You know, it was like the anatomy of this system that led up to these arrests was being dissected within these court filings. And when I finally had the time and the opportunity, I pitched did as a project to ProPublica, and that's when the real digging began. You know, like this story is really the definitive narrative of those arrests from 2016, but also a system that underpinned those arrests. What were your findings there? Yeah, so we found that in all, 11 kids were arrested. Uh, it had originally been 10 that was reported, but there was one kid arrested accidentally, which can give you a little insight into how chaotic this was. Um, those kids' ages ranged from 8 to 14 years old. Four of those children uh all of them black, all of them young boys were kept overnight, some two nights in the juvenile detention center. And um, that, you know, that day the arrests happened, officers had been in serious disagreement about whether or not these arrests should even have happened or be taking place. So there was lots of discord within the department. But 
in the broader context, these arrests sparked a handful of lawsuits in federal court. And those lawsuits were parallel to another lawsuit that was targeting this county and the detention center over its use of solitary confinement for kids. So there were these seven lawsuits that were circling this county. And when we went and dug into those and we talked to kids and we talked to um, those affiliated with the county and did, you know, serious digging, we found that for one, the charges that those kids were arrested for on that day were actually not real charges. Uh, We found that the county knew that they had been um, they had been told on a number of occasions, you know, that they were jailing far too many kids as back as more than a decade ago. They were alerted to this issue, yet they ignored it. Uh, we found that county officials had even tried to push back against some of the policies that the judge had put in place, but they were never listened to. Um, we found that the state does a pretty terrible job at oversight when it comes to juvenile detention centers and juvenile courts. You know, they missed these blatantly illegal policies for years. So our investigation's findings really went from a very granular kind of day of communication breakdown, a charge was not a charge, to this system and the state-level oversight that was woefully inadequate. Last week's episode about the Wilder Youth Detention Center kind of highlights how the state has been negligent in oversight, like you mentioned. Can you tell us about a specific case that really caught your eye? Yeah, the case of a, of a young man named Quintarius Frazier. Uh, he uh, was 15 years old, uh, detained in the detention center, uh, had intellectual disabilities, and he was placed in solitary confinement for really long periods. And it was ultimately um, his case. He decided to sue the county uh, over its use of solitary confinement. And because uh, they were seeking just a stop to this practice, this was not for any money. Hmm. You know, this was simply just to get it to stop doing what they were doing to kids. And it worked, you know, uh, but Quintarius was also illegally and arrested, illegally arrested and jailed a number of times. He really just touches on all of these issues that have been so um, embedded in this county, so uh, troubling and, um, you know, really uh, hurtful to, to young people over their life. But, you know, the thing is, is that he took this on himself. Like he didn't ask for money. He knew he wasn't getting any money. And um, he said in a declaration to the court that he was doing this, he was bringing this lawsuit so that what happened to him would never happen to another kid. And I think, you know, that's what really struck me. It's really incredible for a young person to take on this burden for no compensation, for nothing but helping other kids who come after him. Mm. And so his story has always stuck with Mm -hmm. me. You know, this story had a massive reach. It went viral. Did you expect that type of public reaction? I did not. Um, juvenile justice is not really a viral thing, I usually mm. think. But no, it went really crazy on Twitter. I have never had a story do that. You know, this story was more than 10,000 words. Even the tweet thread that went viral, viral was 23 tweets long. Mm. And so it was Really amazing to see people stick with the story, to read it to completion, to be outraged, um, to retweet all 23 tweets. So it really um, was surprising and it was it was really humbling and, and nice to see that people will stick with a long piece of writing. Particularly writing like this. Yeah. You know, what's been the impact of this story? 
it's it's really been um, pretty remarkable. I mean, uh, the investigation spurred immediate demands for reform. Eleven members of Congress wrote the U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland calling for the Department of Justice to open a civil rights investigation. Tennessee's Governor Bill Lee called for a review of Judge Davenport. Um, at Middle Tate's Middle State, ugh, Middle I call it MTSU, Middle Tennessee State University, mm-hmm. uh, cut ties with Judge Davenport. She had been an adjunct teacher there for many, many years. Um, and state legislators introduced a bill uh, to remove the judge, actually, um, calling it an appalling abuse of power. Uh, but in January, after we did another story uh, about that um, resolution, Davenport announced that she would retire this year rather than run for re-election. Now, we know the judge is just one part of this system. Mm-hmm. And there will be a new judge. How will how much of a difference do you think that will make? I think that's really like the million dollar question here. You know, it depends. The judge has immense power, uh, especially in the state of Tennessee. It's one of the hardest states to actually remove a judge from. Uh, It takes two thirds vote uh, by the state legislature Mm. um, to do that. You know, and this judge, uh, in terms of a juvenile court judge, has immense power. They oversee the detention center. They oversee the court. Uh, In Tennessee, we uh, merge delinquency cases with child welfare cases. So it's this huge umbrella. You're essentially overseeing any child that touches the court system in any type of way. And the system is so large and it's been so embedded and operated this way for decades. And the people who are inside the system have been doing their job for many decades. So you can replace the person at the top. And yes, the buck stops with that person, but it remains to be seen what will happen to all the people who have been operating within the system for so many years and making decisions um, that they haven't been held accountable for. So um, it just depends. You know, we're in the middle of an election season. Um, There will be a new judge. Uh, There are two people running, a Republican and an independent. And what they will do uh, really remains to be seen. You know, I know you're still following this story. So what's next for your reporting? (laughs) Well, um, I can't talk too much about it, but we are working on a podcast um, that is far ranging. And that's all I can say for now. But I'm very excited uh, to keep this story moving forward to showcase it in audio because it's really, really amazing audio. You know, one of the things that we did was we uh, made more than 50 public records requests and we obtained 38 hours of investigative interviews with all of the people involved in that arrest the day of that mass arrest of those kids, that audio had never been heard, mm. has never really been heard. So I'm very excited to to make something that will hit the ears uh, in a new way. So. Uh, let me ask you, what does it feel like to have this story recognized by the Pulitzer judges? I mean, it's alongside work from The New Yorker and The Atlantic. How do you feel? Yeah, I mean... <sighs> I, when I saw our name pop up on the screen with, you know, this unbelievable piece uh, about Afghan women in The New Yorker and this equally unbelievable piece by Jennifer Sr. in The Atlantic on 20 years since 9-11, I was just really proud of local news. You know, I was really happy and proud to be a local reporter. Uh, It was a local story and it was sandwiched between these two massive international and national stories. And I just really 
was proud and believe in local news so much. You know, I believe in rigorous reporting of local news. It's just so critical, especially right now, you know, as we see things become so much more uh, rooted in state matters and state decisions, uh, kind of this working away from federal government to more state by state issues. And that just means that our work is all the more important, that local reporting really, really matters, and uh, that we need to be there to watch and to shine a light and to hold people accountable for their decisions. That answer you gave is going to be the theme for our next fun drive. <laughs> Support local news. Mariba Knight is a senior reporter at WPLN News. She and her reporting partner, Ken Armstrong from ProPublica, broke this story late last year. The investigation into the Rutherford County juvenile justice system has just named a Pulitzer finalist yesterday. You can check out that story at WPLN.org. Mariba, again, congratulations and thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Khalil. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll check in on how the ongoing conflict in Ukraine is hitting home here in Tennessee and find out what some local folks are doing to help. Tweet us your stories at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. It's been just over two months since the war in Ukraine began. Thousands have been killed and cities have been leveled as Russian forces continue to push into Ukrainian territory. Yesterday, President Biden signed a World War II era Lend-Lease Act signaling a firmer commitment to the U.S. from the U.S. to help defeat Russia. So how is this hitting home for Ukrainian Americans in our community here in Tennessee? I'd like to welcome back Diana Nalivayiko. She is a student at Vanderbilt who was, has family in Ukraine. She first joined us in March during the early stages of the conflict. Diana, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, thank you for having me. So, Diana, you were with us just over two months ago, and the conflict is still continuing. Tell me, how are you feeling at this moment? So I feel very stressed. Uh, I have been feeling stressed uh, since the beginning of uh, the full-scale invasion. And uh, it is very heartbreaking for me right now to observe that uh, there have not been a lot of advances in uh, the ongoing conflict. And uh, it has been very sad for me that uh, the world leaders have been hesitating a lot uh, about the situation and uh, a lot of people have died already. This was very heartbreaking for me. I'm really sorry to hear that. And you're just finishing up your first year of college. Has this kind of interrupted your studies at all? Uh, yes, in some in some way, yes, uh, because uh, I uh, was dealing with a lot of stress at school. Uh, so spring semester is kind of more busy, you know, it's busier than uh, the fall semester. And uh, I had a lot of assignments. Uh, and uh, when this news hit me, I just uh, couldn't think about anything but about uh, my family, about all the people in my country. Uh, so yeah, it has been very tough for me, but uh, I finished my last assignments and finished my finals. So now I feel pretty relieved about it. Okay. 
You know, when we last spoke, we, we talked about your family, specifically your father, who left to fight the invasion. Can you give us an update on how your family's doing? Uh, yes, so my family was hiding uh, in the northern uh, oblast, Chernihiv oblast. And uh, recently, the Russian forces left my hometown. So uh, my family decided to go back uh, because, uh, I mean, my, my, my mother still works and uh, she understands that she needs to contribute to the economy of Ukraine and to pay taxes because they will go to the military. Uh, and that's very understandable for her. And my father is still uh, in the army. He's still fighting. I am very proud of him. Uh, sometimes uh, we exchange texts. Uh, and uh, he says that he's all right. He says that, uh, uh, yeah, everything is going to be all right. So, yeah, of course, I cannot just, you know, calm down while reading all the news because uh, it is pretty hard for Ukrainians here in the United States uh, to read the news and to be overwhelmed with the situation and not to see the situation. Because uh, as far as a lot of people from Ukraine tell me who are in Ukraine right now, they tell me that it's not as as pretty tough as a lot of media just portray because there is a, a big amount of information in media right now about Ukraine, which is very important at the same time. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, there are also a lot of things that the media cannot tell. Now, you said that your family went back to your hometown. How has your mom yeah. described the conditions of your hometown? Uh, so it is... It is in a very hard conditions. A lot of uh, buildings are destroyed. A lot of um, <clears throat> a lot of streets are just uh, you know in mass right now because of all the uh, building structures. They are ruined. And uh, she told me that uh, the bridge to my hometown was uh, was ruined by Russian forces. So she had to go and to find a different route. Uh, to our hometown and she told me that it took her way more time maybe probably three hours of road it, normally she would go uh by car like for one hour and a half uh and this was this is pretty hard and also um i received a lot of information from my friends who stayed in my hometown and who stayed in my hometown uh, especially one of them is uh, right now in the local army uh, and he's telling that uh, there are a lot of um, outside outside of my hometown in the suburbs there are uh, the places of uh, buried people mm. where, uh, you know, just one like field and uh, they dig in uh, to put uh, the the bodies of dead people who uh, died during the invasion. Hmm. My next guest was just in Ukraine. In fact, he, he just got back yesterday. David Van Hooser is a documentary filmmaker who recorded a daily travel diaries, and we'll, we'll bring you those here on Morning Edition soon. David, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. So you were there on the ground. Tell us, what did you see? Yes, uh, I was there last week for about seven or eight days last week, and I was I went into Western Ukraine, so uh, I was not in the in the combat area, but it's still a country at war. And one of the thing, 
many things I witnessed was the resolve of the Ukrainian people to, uh, I guess you could say, fight this invasion in their own way. They you know, may not be able to take up arms, but their service was uh, to be toward the refugees, toward the displaced persons whose lives had been upended by the war. Uh, in, in particular, a friend of mine, Christina Katrakas is her name, who lives in Ukraine. And um, it just it just helped me with her as a guide. It helped me to see how how determined and how committed uh, the people were to to being supportive and to helping those who were really suffering. I'm curious, what inspired this trip? Okay, I'm glad you asked that. Uh, I had I was watching the news uh, when this began, uh, late February, early March. The, the invasion began when Russia was invading. I was watching it. And I became extremely, on a daily basis, extremely sad, extremely angry about what I was saying. And to be honest, I uh, talked to God about it and said, okay, God, I'm angry about this. I'm sad about this. That's not helping anyone or doing anything. Uh, I don't know what to do with this. And it wasn't long after that, that I received a voice message from my friend, Christina, as I said, who lived there with her family. And she knew me and what I did. And she said, David, I want you to come over here. Is it possible you can bring your camera and come over here and document what we are trying to do, the humanitarian efforts. So I figured that was a pretty, pretty clear and present calling uh, that I received. And that's what prompted me to go. For your trip, you meant, just mentioned meeting Christina Katrakus and her husband, Roman Kudlai. Their family had just fled to the western part of the country, along with millions of other Ukrainians in the yes. early days of the Russian invasion. Roman quickly noticed the need for food, clothing, and shelter all around them. Thousands and thousands of refugees from, uh, from the east of Ukraine came in this region uh, of Vorokta and Ivano-Frankivsk. Uh, and that was like day after day, thousands are coming and coming, and I understood that it could be a problem. So we've, I said to Christina, Christina, uh, you got all your connections, you've got the uh, possibility to uh, unite people, to uh, to deliver them the message that uh, uh, we need uh, to do something. We need to. To, to find the supply for all the refugees and and to help local people to provide these uh, necessary things for everybody so there will be no humanitarian crisis in in the district where we've been uh, staying for that short of period of time so david what did roman and christina decide to do what they did in this uh, in this uh, western Ukraine community is they they decided to organize and orchestrate release relief efforts uh, for refugees. And by that, I mean uh, primarily food to provide food for them, to provide clothing, to provide just basic human everyday needs uh, to get these supplies, not only to the fleeing refugees, but also to those uh more in the eastern part of the country who were still in their towns, still there, trapped or unable or unwilling to leave their places. And so they um, they have what I call, what Roman and Christina have done is create a grassroots effort in their area made of local Ukrainians who are committed 
to uh, trying to provide some kind of relief, some kind of hope to these uh, to the people fleeing their way into Western Ukraine. Christina has really become a huge part of your documentary work, David. Just listening to her, you could tell how important this work is to her. I look for food every morning. So, so is it because the And every night I do the same. And I realize that it's getting harder and harder. And I realize that if it continues that way, we will have to close our mission, which would be a shame because so much love and work and effort was put into it. And just in one month, we delivered to over 1,183 people. David, tell us more about Christina and your experience working alongside her. Well, I've known Christina for a number of years, first met her on a documentary shoot uh, over a decade ago. And I've always known she was a uh, incredibly uh, kind and giving person. And uh, just watching her in action, I guess you could say, watching her connection to the uh, refugees, to just her. And I don't know if you could hear the emotion in her voice, mm-hmm. uh, but I remember that moment when I was talking to her and and it was very difficult for her because she has a great deal of passion for these people, has a I should say passion and compassion for these people and is is fighting a, a, a I guess you could say an uphill battle to be able to provide for them because that's where her heart is and that's what she's striving to do um, as she says on a daily basis is to um, help sustain these these folks and so I've just I've just witnessed that and and you're right she she as I put this documentary together and and shooting the footage she has become a critical strong and and uh, and potent part of of this uh, documentary because she's she doesn't want the center stage but but she's helping uh, has a lot to do with helping guide these efforts for these people if you're just tuning in this is nashville and i'm your host Kaliole colona we're talking about the ongoing war in ukraine diana nalivaiko is still with me her family is in ukraine diana from what you've heard from your family and others what are the biggest needs currently in mariupol uh, so as far as I know, I think uh, the biggest need is for medication. Uh, recently, I was looking at the pictures from uh, media of uh, Ukrainian soldiers who are uh, in the Azovstal uh, building. And uh, it's just so hard to look at them. And also I am uh, following some of the um some of the soldiers who are in Azostal and they say mainly that they need medications and they need to uh, resolve uh, the siege of Mariupol because people are dying because they simply do not have the medications. And uh, um, it's very terrible. It's so hard to look at that. You know, while you were there, David, what type of help were people saying they needed? David, you with us? Yes, I'm there. Okay. Yes, I'm here. Sorry about that. Food first and foremost, because that's a that's a consistent need. Um, you know, you just have to have it on a daily or hourly basis. And especially, uh, I will say, and I think most of us have seen the footage that most of these refugees are women with children, and and so there's a a need to feed those children and and clothe them as well. And as as it's been stated, medical supplies 
are are critical as well. These these people are. I, I can't imagine having to pack my life into a single suitcase or a single car hmm. and hitting the hitting the road with a bunch of with a group of children. And so the again, food, medical supplies, and clothing are, are just a a critical, ongoing, unending need for these people. You interviewed a young warehouse worker named Sosha. He and his mom were gathering and distributing food, clothing, and medical supplies for displaced refugees. He said it's something he feels called to do. This work, uh, a lot of stress, but uh, I'm also, I understand that uh, uh, it is really valuable. It is not something that uh, you're obligated to do. It is something that you feel you need to do. So she goes on to say this work is, quote, for the country and for the people, end quote. David, is this a common sentiment you heard? Absolutely. Without without exception. Uh, uh, Sosha, whom you just referred to, was in uh, working in a warehouse in Borokta uh, in western Ukraine. And uh, the, the people who owned, the father and son who owned that warehouse, had, uh, had given up the space for use as a warehouse. And I saw that in another, in a nearby city, Ivanko Frankist, where a business owner had likewise uh, release the use of his warehouse for business purposes and had given that over to to being a storage place for products. And a woman uh, who uh, ran a daycare in kindergarten was now had converted her place into a into housing for refugee families. So I saw that consistently that there was there was almost nothing these people would not do to help those suffering from this war. Diana, is that a similar sentiment that the Ukrainian people here in Nashville have expressed? Uh, yeah, a lot of Ukrainians here uh, were gathering uh, the medical supplies and they were also gathering a lot of clothes and food supplies. And uh, especially they were gathering the protection for the soldiers. Uh, but uh, right now, um, I, I don't know, like they, they gathered they gathered pretty a lot, mm -hmm. a lot of supplies. And at the same time, you know, it interacts with their personal life. They also have jobs. They also have uh, to take care of themselves, too. And it's pretty hard for them. And uh, I'm helping them a lot, too. What do you want people to know about this conflict? Uh, so I want them to know, especially about Mariupol. And as you mentioned before, 20,000 of civilians died already just in Mariupol. And this is a scary, truly scary number. And uh, uh, I just want you can just Google Mariupol uh, and you can see a lot of pictures of destroyed uh, buildings of wounded people. And this is so hard to look at these pictures. And uh, I don't know what else to add, but I think just knowing about all these crimes that Russia committed against Ukraine, the biggest one is uh, the city of Mariupol. Well, our, our, our thoughts are with you and your family. David, real quick, about 30 seconds. What about you? I mean, you were on the ground. You had the perspective. What's your biggest takeaway? Oh, goodness. Uh, I have hope, but I have despair at the same time. Uh, the despair of seeing, seeing uh, good people uh, suffer who want peace, would like nothing better than to go about their 
their lives before this. But also I have I, I just have the, the hope that that people can come together. These people are coming together uh, to help. Uh, help suffering people. And that that has affected me and changed my life. Uh, and it's given me great, great hope in the midst of, of great despair. That is documentary filmmaker David Van Husser. He was joined by Ukrainian Vanderbilt student Diana Nalivaiko. Thanks to you both for being with us today. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn about how local folks are organizing to help civilians in Ukraine. And we'll find out how the ongoing conflict could impact our global food supply. Tweet us your thoughts about the conflict in Ukraine at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil E. Colonna, and this is Nashville. As Russian forces began to attack Ukraine in late February, there was an outpouring of support for the people of Ukraine across the West. Now, as the conflict rages on after two months, some of that sense of urgency has faded, even as the death total counts rise and millions of civilians have been displaced and access to food and medical care has sharply declined. Many have wondered what exactly they can do to help at this point. My next guest has been working on organizing outreach efforts here in Nashville. Chaplain Scott Owings, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. So tell me, why did you want to be involved in relief efforts? I think it goes back to my wife, Lisa, and I lived in the former Eastern Europe from 1988 to 2000. And it was a real, um, you know, best of times for us. Two of our three children were born there, uh, met some incredible people and just uh, the challenge and joy of of uh, gaining new friends and trying to do that sometimes in another language. And so when I heard about the war beginning, I immediately thought of some of my dear Ukrainian friends, uh, including Zoya, who I believe is on the show. And so I reached out to her and um, yeah, that's kind of where it started. You mentioned Zoya as you started organizing, you consulted with Zoya Malovanova, who joins us now. Thank you so much, Zoya, for being with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So. I understand that you fled Budapest from your home in Kyiv with your two children when the bombing started. First, let me ask you, how are you and your children doing right now? Oh, we're doing great. We actually went to Kyiv for a week or even for like a bit longer just to check uh, how things are going. Uh, But for now, we are back to Budapest again. So everything is fine. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. You know, tell me, you you recently went to Kyiv. Why did you make that trip? Oh, the thing is that um, um, I never planned uh, on living, you know, Ukraine. Even though I studied in the states, I have a job here in Budapest. I used to fly um, like on a weekly basis almost. So it was never my ambition to go for Europe or America. And uh, the war has not changed that. Uh, and so I feel I felt a little bit ashamed of you know being in safety. Well, so many other people and relatives uh, are back there. Uh, and we judge that it is relatively safe to be in Kiev. Uh, 
And so I went there and I wanted my kids. Actually, um, I have a son and um, a daughter of my husband from previous marriage is also living with, uh, with me now. So we all of us went there to Kiev to, just to see with our eyes to maybe help somebody. And what did you see? Uh, it was a bit shocking because, you know, I'm from central Ukraine, from Kiev. And uh, in the western west of Ukraine, um, you know, I don't feel that it's my home. But the closer I got to Kiev, uh, the more I felt that, you know, I'm coming home, I'm coming home. And uh, we are taking a highway uh, to get to Kiev. You need to get the highway, Zhitomer Highway. And that's where very heavy fighting was taking place. And so uh, I went there and I know those places quite well. And I saw the, all those destroyed houses on the left and right. And it's about like 20, 30, 50 km, kilometers from the village where we have our house. But like, it was really shocking. But at the same time, uh, another thing surprised me in a good way because the road, you know, they, they renovated the road. So because it was hit so heavy, uh, heavily by, you know, there were, was all this fighting going on on this highway. But they, in two, three weeks after uh, the Russians were kicked out of the region, uh, they, you know, made sure that you can uh, drive on that road. So on a car, on a simple car. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was, you know, a nice surprise. And, um, and then uh, I reached uh, the village where we have our house. Uh, and uh, it was it was part basically the front was there. Uh, it was not occupied, but heavy fighting was taking place there, and that was I mean I felt devastated because I never you know the roads the uh, that that was a street where I would take my bike you know to uh, to to go to a lake, and you know I went there on a car and so many houses were completely destroyed. Mm. Our house survived, so I was happy for that, of course, but it just felt weird. And grocery stores out of like um, five, um, it's not a grocery store, it's basically uh, huge malls, uh, like three huge malls and two gro smaller grocery stores, only one survived, uh, all the others are destroyed. The bridge, uh, the bridge that led to Kiev was also destroyed. But uh, two weeks after we, uh, Ukraine, uh, we retook the this place. Uh, it is renovated. We have a new bridge. I mean, temporary, but still, you can you can go there. You can use cars. So, Scott, you and Zoya have been in regular communication at this point, which is how you figured out how to do exactly what. What were your plans? Yeah. So when the war started, I reached out to Zoya very concerned about her and she responded and uh you know maybe the next week i kind of woke up from a dream and it's like i gotta go and so in mid-march i was sent by my church saint augustine's uh, episcopal chapel and the nonprofit i lead to to go to europe and to sort of go to some of the cities where we used to live and to see some ukrainian friends and to listen and to see if there maybe were some specific ways that we could give. And so on this trip, I was able to spend a couple of days with visiting with Zoya and her family, uh, as well as some friends in other European cities. But I was, I was especially, um, yeah, touched and sort of overwhelmed with gratitude for what Zoya's brother 
was doing in Keith. And uh, so, yeah, his story, and I'm sure Zoya can tell more, he was an adjunct professor at the University of Pittsburgh. He's the head of the economic school in Kiev. But he was, uh, so he was teaching in the United States on an adjunct year. When he heard about the war, he went back immediately to Kiev and said, we need to start organizing so that people can have some specific ways to give. And so when, as the war you know, had begun, uh, the immediate need was for safety for Ukrainian citizens who were stuck in Ukraine. And so uh, through his, Zoya's brother's leadership, um, we were able to send emergency kits or be a part of an initiative that sent emergency kits into Ukraine. Uh, each kit cost $77. It contained within it a, a tourniquet, a blanket, some antibiotics, uh, some food. And so that was sort of the, the first need that Zoya and her brother said, this is what we need help with. And so we were able to raise and send about $30,000 for that. And then once the Russian troops left the Kiev region, Zoya and her brother connected me to another organization that said, hey, our, uh, I mean, there's so many needs, but our current need is food. Mm. And so they were saying, why not see if you can't uh, gather and send seeds uh, so that Ukrainians can plant their own uh, vegetables and be able to feed themselves. And so we're currently in the process of uh, raising money, and we actually just sent a uh, $7,000 worth of seeds to Poland last night. How's it been going so far? Uh, with with the, uh, the fundraiser? With the sending seeds. Oh, yeah. Well, we sent them yesterday, and so hopefully they will arrive uh, in good fashion. The, the, I think the, the real concern was that they get there in time so that, you know, uh, folks living in Ukraine could plant them in a timely manner. If, if you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We've been talking about the food shortages in Ukraine and the outreach work here in Nashville aiming to help. My next guest is also using food as a method for generating support. Natalia Drozhin is a chef and the founder of Mom Dish, a website dedicated to making cooking accessible. She is a Ukrainian refugee who came to the U.S. at just 12 years old. Natalia, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So... Tell me, what type of fundraising events have you been a part of? Um, so we started initially with our Instagram page, which is Momsish on Instagram. And we have been working with one of my close friends. Actually, we recently moved from Seattle about a year ago. And one of my friends that currently lives in Seattle, they lived in Ukraine for over 10 years. They were creating orphanages there. And their um, organization is called Agape UA. And they are working closely with orphanages. When I heard about Ukrainian news, it was so devastating. Just like Scott said, um, it's just it was really heartbreaking for some time. We're thinking, what can we do? Um, like a morning type of thing, like we're, we're just so stressed. And then after that, we're like, well, we got to do something about it. So started planning with our community initially on our social media, talking about it. And people were so open. Getting people to safety was the first step that we worked with Agape. And then 
later on, I was telling my husband this idea, you know, like, I'm like, I can do a cooking class. Nobody really knows about Ukrainian food, really. And, you know, in just in the region, there's not much about Ukrainian food. So just through this idea and like reached out to a few people and there was like such a huge outreach. And I was like, well, I can't teach that many people in one class setting. Let's do like some sort of like an event where people come over and we feed them. So we reached out to a local neighborhood and they have a restaurant on site. Their chef got involved. We made like a lot of classics where we fed people and we were able to raise over $15,000 there. Wow. That's really amazing. You know, Scott, have you seen people very eager to support your efforts as well? Yes, very much so. I think we all feel overwhelmed. And so people want to give. And I think it's been helpful. At least that's what I've been hearing to have some specific ways to give, including like taking your kids down to Home Depot and buying seeds that make a difference. So, yeah, I think specific ways of giving helps. I want to ask you this, you know, because Ukraine is the world's sixth largest producer of wheat. But as we mentioned, you know, port cities of Odessa and Mariupol have been under attack, making exporting virtually impossible. So Scott, how will this affect the global food supply? Yeah, that's my real concern. I know uh, I'm not alone on that, but not only do we uh, receive maybe 30% of our wheat from Ukraine, so there's going to be a famine. Uh, at least there's going to be a shortage of bread here. But I'm really concerned about Africa and the Middle East. I mean, I spend a lot of time going to Botswana every year to work with the hospice. And so, you know, Africa is already uh, struggling in, in some ways. So to think about not having bread to go to Africa, I mean, that will be a worldwide problem. How are you informing people about the greater global issues that this conflict is causing? <laughs> well, uh, you know, asking for help is a big one. Um, you know, I, whenever I get the chance, uh, I'm one of the priests at St. Augustine's. I preach about it. Um, our, fun, our nonprofit is sort of... Um, having several different events. We did a yoga party last week talking about bread. We're selling bread baskets now. It seems to, to be catching on. So it's, it's sort of a uh, shared trade initiative where the baskets are from our uh, friends at Tinsel Farms. And then uh, we have a, a tea towel from Ukraine and then bread from Aleski's, which is a in Ukrainian market here in town. And so people... Uh, are buying these baskets for, you know, a suggested donation of $100. And so all the money goes to Ukraine, but hopefully raises some awareness about Ukraine is the breadbasket of the world, and we need to pay attention and help as we can. Now, Natalia, Mom's Dish is all about food, the, the dishes that remind us of our mom's home-cooked meals. But with this conflict, it's impossible for some to even think about that. Tell me, how do you feel when you hear about people who are not having access to food or medicine? Honestly, I feel um, somebody earlier mentioned on the show that there's a lot of guilt involved as well. Mm -hmm. I do have a lot of guilt knowing that, you know, my, you know, part of Ukraine is suffering with no food, but I am trying to focus mainly what I can do 
So also another part that we are doing, we I come originally from Western part of Ukraine and I have a lot of resources there. I know a lot of people. So we are financially supporting areas where they're creating food and sending it to Eastern part because this is the best way to deal with this kind of environment to help and just kind of be given in this kind of situation. What are some ways that people here in Nashville can help? I think supporting charities that you can trust. So I mentioned Agape UA is one of the organizations we have been supporting. We talk about it on, on our social media page, just finding a resource, how you can help. We randomly select people that, you know, we see that are doing something for Ukraine. I just feel like the social media world creates such a great platform for all of us to connect and be able to help. So I think there is finding a resource where you can, you know, reach out. You can welcome to reach out to me. I'll find ways to connect you guys as well. Scott, I know you slightly answered this, but I want to answer, ask the same question of you. You know, how can folks here become more informed about the outreach efforts and how can they get involved? Not to be tried, but I really believe, you know, asking God for mercy and for, for wisdom is maybe uh, one thing we can all do. And, and then just finding one way to give. And we can't change the world, but we can do what we can do. So I guess that would be my encouragement is to pray, to ask, you know, that somehow this uh, war might end soon. And then in the meantime, finding one simple way to give. Zoya, tell me, we've got about 30 seconds left, but what do you want people here in Tennessee to know about what you and people in your homeland are going through? Um, I'd like you guys to know that uh, Ukrainians feel that this war is, you know, we're basically fighting for uh, existence, that it's not an option to surrender, as, you know, some might think. And so we need any help that can be provided to us to win this war and to survive. So it's an existential war for us, the way we feel. That is Zoya Milo, sorry, pardon me, Zoya Milovanova from Kiev. She's joined with, joined us from Budapest where she fled for safety. She was joined by Chaplain Scott Owings and Nashville chef Natalia Drozhin. Thank you all for being with us here today. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, we bring back Citizen Nashville, where we host a panel to answer your questions about abortion rights and access. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Marsha Machukova, Taylor Maritz, and Christina Katrakis. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This Is Nashville. I'm Khalil Lake Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody, and be good to each other.